Promethean Project, A Mortal Reckoning, Episode 5. Chapter 2, 40 Days in the Hole. Day 6 was marked by great relief for everyone. Jim was being released from the ICU back into the care of the cancer center. Oddly, for the second time in one week, the cancer center was a welcome sight compared to where we were. Jim's body cooperated with the interventions that slowly brought him back from the critical condition cliff. The initial treatments were doing their job to hold off the advancing mob of lymphoblasts, allowing improved blood oxygenation. Jim still needed the nose cannoli for oxygen support. It's actually called a cannula, but cannoli is more fun to say. But that was much less invasive and threatening than the Darth Vader breathing apparatus. Our first week in the hospital was fraught with the freneticism of sheer panic. If I could assign a sound to the colliding cultures of healthy, normal life at home with terminal illness in a hospital, it would be a deafening explosion of metal and glass. Though our ears were still ringing from the initial explosion, we soldiered on and set to the task of assessing the damage and preparing for the ensuing war. Test results eliminated any ambiguity. We had a known foe. We also had a dedicated coach, team, arsenal of weaponry, and a strategy designed to vanquish our adversary. Though the disease was rare, we were fortunate, in a relative sense, that our oncologist was knowledgeable about T-cell ALL. She told us she consulted regularly with a national group of doctors who focused on the various treatments, therapies, and clinical trials for adult T-cell. She was a formidable coach indeed. With the most critical aspects of Jim's illness temporarily under control, it was now time for us to focus on driving this beast of a cancer into remission. We were mentally preparing ourselves for four weeks of inpatient chemotherapy. After our sobering conversation with Dr. X, we realized we had another difficult task ahead of us. Whether we wanted to or not, we had to share the news of Jim's condition. We live in a mid-sized city where news travels fast, I wasn't concerned about that. As long as our immediate family heard directly from us, the grapevine was actually a big help. The issue we faced was traffic control for the subsequent outpouring. My husband was a really good man who was kind and generous of spirit. He came from a large family and had an incredible universe of friends. There's something about saying the words, I have leukemia, out loud that solidifies the painful reality. Having to say them repeatedly is akin to stabbing yourself in the thigh with a steak knife over and over again. Fielding people's reactions and responses to your news makes it even more emotionally trying. Frankly, trying to cope with how others reacted was very difficult for me. I still don't have the capacity for it. Amazingly, the patient did a much better job handling it than I did. The pain of it all wasn't the only reason we needed to minimize these conversations. We needed to focus on Jim and everything that was happening in our immediate surroundings. Jim needed rest in between the carnival of chaos that was chemotherapy. The first order of business was Jim's employer. He couldn't just call in sick. The doctor didn't think he would be able to go back to work for at least a year. He was going to have to go out on disability, which meant a call to his boss. 
Next, we had the very difficult task of telling Jim's mother, Rose. She was 90 years old and in pretty decent health. She'd survived her husband and all six of her siblings. Three of her sisters died from cancer, and in 90 years, she'd seen many other friends and family lose ugly fights with the big C. She knew full well what devastation accompanied a cancer diagnosis. At 56 years of age, Jimmy was still her baby. Telling her that Jim had cancer was going to be absolutely brutal. Jim called his brother Frank and sister Kathy to give them the news. They agreed to be at Rose's house when Jim called so they could be there for support. Ugh, she was absolutely distraught. Her PTSD from watching so many loved ones die from cancer was fully triggered. She sobbed and wanted to come to the hospital immediately. Understandable. My parents needed an update as well. My sister Diane was already with us for much of the first week. Like Jim's siblings, she laid the groundwork with my parents. But I still needed to call them. I knew they'd be upset and very worried. With the job and family notifications done, I wanted to find a way to manage the communication with the rest of our universe so it was effective, not overwhelming. I knew we were going to get inundated with calls and texts that we weren't in a position to handle. Hell, I couldn't find my car. How could I actually talk to people? But at the same time, Jim was definitely going to need support. He had so many loved ones. I wanted him to be accessible in a healthy way so he could feel the love and encouragement. My hand needed to be on the throttle so he was buoyed by the well wishes, not drowned by them. Fortunately, I remembered a website a friend used several years ago to post information about his progress when he was struggling with illness. I did a quick internet search for the site when the calls started coming in. CaringBridge was the first website to pop up in my search. A cursory view proved the site was going to be the answer to my communication prayers. CaringBridge's nonprofit status means they don't run ads or sell user data, unlike the metaverse. This was the perfect user-friendly tool I needed to disseminate information quickly. I signed up for an account right away. Late at night, I'd write my entries in the CaringBridge journal like it was my diary. The dimmed hospital lights and low hum of machines lulled my excited mind into a temporary peace where I could sort through the day's events. Conveying our story in this format helped me unwind what was happening so I could plan for the next day. The responses to my posts were deeply moving. It felt like I was having a private conversation with each person. Through CaringBridge, loved ones from far and wide kept me company and gave me strength to keep fighting the fight. Jim didn't read the entries himself. Sometimes he would want me to read them aloud, but most of the time he chose to skip it when I offered. He was living it. He didn't need my play-by-play. -play. People commented to him frequently about how much they enjoyed the posts. He would share all the feedback with me and say, You're such a good writer. I've always said you should write. He was my biggest cheerleader. When he was emotionally able to tolerate them, I would read Jim the comments. He was so moved by people's words. He would often get misty and sometimes cry. The messages of love and encouragement would overwhelm him, so I'd have to stop and save the rest for later. I downloaded all the entries and comments and have incorporated much of the material from the entries into this work. To this day, I still read the comments. People's touching words help me stay grounded while I mourn Jim's loss. We had over 12,000 visits to the site while Jim was sick. It's a remarkable but not surprising response because Jim was a pretty remarkable person.
God damn it, where the fuck is my car? From the very first trip to the emergency room, finding my car in the hospital's six-tiered parking garage made me feel like a contestant on a game show. I was so upset and overwhelmed, I forgot where I parked every single time. I would spend a minimum of 15 minutes every day running up and down the stairs, wandering around parking levels, pressing my key fob, and listening for my Jeep. I'm sure I had a vacant look on my face while seemingly walking in circles just from the sheer stress of our situation. If someone watched a video recording of my parking garage promenades, they would likely make the assumption that I had escaped from the memory care unit. In the early days of Jim's diagnosis, I would make a mental note of the floor level color and number of my space, committing the information to memory with confidence and certitude. Alas, when I returned, it was like I'd just arrived from Mars and didn't even know what a car was. During my many scavenger hunts around the garage, I observed the public's entertaining parking strategies used to meet the challenges presented by the curious parking ramp design. The angled spaces were really close together. Even if you parked perfectly between the lines, which was hard to do because it only took one person parking over one line to completely throw off an entire row, the likelihood of being able to open your car door enough to extricate your entire body in one try was slim, and heaven forfend you had any bags with you. I had to climb into my driver's seat from the passenger side more times than you could imagine. I'm a petite person. I don't know how your average-sized adult did it. I became a little obsessive and actually took pictures of the parking spots and wonky parking jobs. I even measured my parking spaces with a tape measure to figure out the math of how one was supposed to open their car door all the way in order to get in and out. I was going to send the parking garage people a letter. It blows my mind that the designers of the lot thought their spacing would work for anyone other than a ballet dancer driving a Mini Cooper. I had plenty of time to think about this. After the physical and emotional chaos of our cancer life in the hospital, Ruminating on solving the parking garage puzzle was a sedating mental task, almost like playing one of those handheld pinball games I had when I was a kid. Two weeks into our stay, I finally had the presence of mind to park on the garage's rooftop level. There were multiple benefits to this strategy. First, I always knew where my car was. Second, as it wasn't considered an optimal location because your car would be exposed to the elements, I was assured a good spot. Often I was one of the few cars up there, so I didn't have to climb in through the trunk or worry about my car getting dinged. Lastly, I could see Jim's room from where I parked. I could call him when I arrived or when I was leaving and wave to him. I'd often do some kind of silly dance to make him laugh. I later realized that the construction workers on the floor underneath him could also see me dance. I should have taken the opportunity to flip them off for waking him up all the time with their stupid power tools. This was like my secret personal parking space. Garage management plowed well and regularly, so I never had to worry about getting snowed in. No matter where you parked, though, the parking attendants were always so nice. I often cried when they said, Have a good afternoon. Their kindness was genuine. I'd bottle up all my fear and anxiety and hide it from Jim and my kids while in the hospital. It only took one parking attendant's kind salutation to uncork all my tears. Once the chaos of our first week settled down, we got into a rhythm with our treatment plan and succumbed, albeit begrudgingly, to hospital life. In the beginning, Jim did pretty well. His body tolerated the chemo better than we both expected. He looked so good. You'd never guess he was a patient. As I mentioned earlier, he grew his beard out, perhaps in anticipation of losing his hair. 
One last hirsute hurrah, if you will. The chemo would give him the standard nausea and fatigue, but he bounced back from the first few treatments relatively quickly. His tolerance of the treatments instilled a feeling of hope and optimism in us. When he was feeling up to it, he'd talk or text on his phone with friends and read or draw. People suggested we bring in things from home to help Jim feel more comfortable, but he didn't want his things. We were in agreement on this point. We did not want the hospital to be our home. The idea of going home gave us hope and purpose. The only item he really wanted was his mandolin. He didn't play it much, but he found it comforting to have in his possession nonetheless. One of his nurses was really into music. Nurse M brought in his guitar so they could play together during his breaks. They'd talk about the Rochester music scene and play a tune or two. Jim enjoyed Nurse M's company, and I appreciated his genuine interest in Jim as a person, not a patient. Playing with Nurse M took the performance pressure off Jim. If his bandmates came in to play, they'd notice his declining abilities. Nurse M never heard Jim play, so he had nothing to compare him to. And, as an oncology nurse, he was eager to celebrate the musician that Jim was in his heart and didn't pay any attention to what may no longer have been in Jim's hands. Jim's creativity didn't stop at the edges of his visual artistry. He had a passion for music that he expressed in his younger years through the acoustic guitar. Back in the days before children, we caroused at festivals and parties that revolved around homemade music. Memories of mirth-filled nights spent singing and dancing with our friends until the roosters told us it was time to settle down, glow in my heart like the bonfires we sat around. At home, we enjoyed playing together as a couple. He'd accompany me on the guitar while I sang. Those were special times, like the world was on hold while we created together. Playing with our musician friends wet Jim's appetite for more opportunities to perform. Though he enjoyed the guitar, he was in search of a broader musical experience. Forever a student of his heritage, he'd been listening to Italian folk music where the mandolin figured prominently. My auditory line was crossed the day Jim came home with a CD of Italian fishermen singing old folk songs. When he pressed play, this horrible noise emanated from the speakers, like a kraken yodeling. That's when I decided to scrape my pennies together and buy him a mandolin. Saving money wasn't the hard part. Actually shopping for a musical instrument that I knew nothing about was the challenge. And Jim was a lefty, which complicated matters. Internet shopping wasn't as prevalent then, but I think that actually simplified my search. I made a couple phone calls, and as luck would have it, I found the only left-handed mandolin in the area at a music shop across town. The boys and I were delighted to present this gift to him for Father's Day. The instrument was a little beat up, and I had no idea if it was any good, but none of that mattered to Jim because it was love at first sight. The mandolin opened up a whole new world of music for him and eventually set him down his path to becoming a bona fide gig musician. Once the instrument was in his hot hands, he spent hours learning how to play. He took a few lessons here and there, but it was the guys who eventually became his bandmates that taught him the most. String Theory, their bluegrass band, got off the ground in the early 2000s. They developed their sound as they played weddings and town festivals. Eventually, they landed a weekly gig at a local bar. Both Jim's musicianship and management skills strengthened over time. I'm not sure if it was because Jim was the most motivated or the most organized, but he ended up managing the business side to keep the very thirsty band cash positive. 
While Jim's love of live music blossomed, mine waned. Sadly, it wasn't something we enjoyed as a couple anymore. The kids were young, so while he was out chasing his dream, I was home chasing little boys. The early years of parenting were filled with high energy, non-stop activity. In a word, exhausting. I would bring the kids to some of the gigs, but it was more work than it was worth. If I managed to hire a babysitter, I'd be stuck in the audience with a bunch of drunks who'd blather on about the band members of Fish like my kids talked about Pokemon characters. Instead of watching my husband, my eyes were on the clock because we couldn't afford the babysitter for much more than two hours. When the kids were in elementary school, I did a cannonball into the deep end of the workforce by taking a job with the governor's office. Staffer jobs can be thankless 24-7 meat grinders. When I wasn't at work, my mind was on high alert for the next knee-jerk panic directive from the second floor, the locus of power in New York State. Many stay-at-home moms will understand that I took a manic approach to proving my value after being home with my children for seven years. I was no longer as present as I should have been for our family. Shortly after I started my new position, Jim got laid off from his job. In an instant, our roles were reversed. Jim became a stay-at-home dad while developing his own freelance graphic design business. His new status aggravated his fear of being broke, so he was on the hunt for more gigs to supplement our income. It took me a while to pull my head out of my own low self-esteem issues to realize that the layoff had a big impact on Jim's psyche. His identity as a professional and as a provider had been called into question, shaking his sense of value and purpose. He was left to face the hobgoblins of money worries, shame, and depression while keeping a stiff upper lip in the court of public opinion. Let's face it, back then, the only people who looked favorably on stay-at-home dads were a man's wife and kids. Our individual dynamism brought complexity to our relationship. While Jim continued to nurture his thirst for musical experiences, I became a workaholic at a job I thought mattered. We fed our obsessive ambitions while holding fast to our deeply rooted family values. It doesn't take a genius to see how our situation would be ripe for conflict. Jim and I loved each other fiercely. That was the easy part. The hard part was relationshiping. Collaborating on parenting, homeownership, career directions, and money management while coping with the surprise stressors that pounce out of life's bag of tricks at times felt Sisyphean. The most well-adjusted marriages can steer off course when they enter the Bermuda Triangle of me, you, us. Ours was no different. Though the waters were choppy, I don't want to give you the impression that it was a constant storm. I suppose when you talk about the deeper hardships of a relationship that aren't typically shared at a cocktail party, one might jump to the conclusion that we were headed for disaster. I view it as the normal rough and tumble of living a full life. We continued to parent, to work on our relationship, and to build our lives together. We never stopped loving each other, so we persevered through the toughest parts. In fact, I think that's what frustrated us the most. As we ran by each other, we built walls between us that were making it increasingly more difficult to communicate in a relational way. The band wall was probably our biggest obstacle, eventually dividing us like 1961 Germany. As Jim added instruments, gigs, and different bands to his repertoire, my resentment boiled over on the stove. The mandolin clearly was the other woman in our marriage. We had countless unproductive arguments about it. 
When he started practicing every morning in the kitchen, I traded my proud memory of gifting him his first mandolin with fantasies of smashing the shit out of it on the sidewalk in front of our house. I viewed Jim's amateur music career as an aggressive intrusion on our family time. When the band hit their stride, they were playing out a couple nights during the week. Weddings sucked up Saturdays, and an additional night was dedicated to practice. Factor in the time it takes to travel places, load equipment, set up and break down, you've got a pretty significant time commitment. When I complained, which was often, he'd point to the fact that he was bringing an additional income into the household. My response was something cruel, like, Let's face it, you're not the Rolling Stones. What you're making isn't worth the time it's taking away from us. I was torn because I wanted him to enjoy what he loved doing. But somehow, it seemed more like escapism than a healthy hobby. The fact that he unapologetically managed to book a gig on our wedding anniversary every single year made me wonder if he was being pulled by music or pushing away from me. Eventually, I realized that much of Jim's identity after he lost his job was attached to his view of himself as a musician. It stands to reason that my criticisms and protests were received as a rejection. And when your partner is rejecting the very thing that validates your self-worth, then why would you want to spend time with them? Things came to a head when the boys were starting high school. I told Jim that my patience had worn thin and that I was tired of taking the back seat to his musical aspirations. I wanted my husband back, and if I couldn't have him, then I wanted out of our marriage. Frankly, my pronouncement was sobering to the both of us. Once the words were out of my mouth, I knew that that wasn't what I wanted. But it was the only thing I could think of to get Jim's attention. Something about the shock factor opened a door for us to have a meaningful conversation, free from the white noise of useless bickering. Rather than blaming Jim for everything, I started to openly admit that I brought a wheelbarrow, maybe two, full of garbage to our marital bonfire. My admission softened Jim's defensive position. We stopped the blame game foes engage in and regrouped as a couple. Step by step, day by day, we started deconstructing the walls we built around our hearts and reinventing our relationship in a way that satisfied us both. Weight training creates micro-tears in your muscle fibers. When your body is at rest between weightlifting sessions, it sends reinforcements to heal the micro-tears. The soreness you feel is a sign that the repair process is working. Over time, that repeated process of tearing and healing strengthens and builds your muscles. I view that contentious period in our lives as our weight training regimen for our relationship. We worked our way through it with our clumsy, self-taught conflict resolution skills while spotting each other to keep the family ship afloat. Though it sucked, I think our tearing and repairing process is what made our marital partnership as strong as tungsten. I'm so grateful to Jim and proud of us both for reaching that sweet spot in our relationship. Those last six years together felt like our first six. Promethean Project was written, recorded, and produced by Jennifer Sanfilippo. Opening music was arranged by Mike Kedley. Closing song for this episode was written by Jim Barbero and performed by String Theory. To learn more, visit my website at www.prometheanprojectamr.com. There, you'll find a donate button. Funds go to support the groundbreaking research of the Harans Lab at Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, a lab dedicated to researching T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. 
Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for episode six. Segura a pele nera, segura o que vera, segura meu amor, perte a repiura e te segura.